Good morning, church. You may be seated. Hope everybody's doing well today. And had a good week celebrating Star Wars Day yesterday. I pick up on that, a little Star Wars theme out in the atrium with VBS coming up. Star Wars Day was yesterday. Most nerds know why, because it was May the 4th. Be with you. You got it? Yeah. I had no idea. No idea that was the case. But And then Chewie dies this week. Did you see that? Chewbacca died this week. And uh, uh, sorry, if you just heard that. We have a moment if you need it. Um, big seven-foot guy never won an award for being Chewbacca. Chewbacca won an award that he had to accept in costume. I guess I didn't realize when he wasn't in that costume, it just hung on a shelf. Um, or did it? Maybe it has been real the whole time, but we didn't know that. Anyway, Star Wars week, kind of fun, kind of cool stuff going on with that. Hope everybody else had a, had a good week and um, Cinco de Mayo today, so <laughs> happy that. And I'm um, not sure what we're supposed to do. I think it's a celebration time. I know margaritas were $5 in Metter when I went through there yesterday in the middle of the day. The day before, I don't know what that really means at a gas station. Um, so <laughs> they're serious uh, about it. So you may want to go back over there today. No, no, just kidding. So we've been talking about unity um, over the past few weeks. Brandon's talked a lot about unity and how this transformation happens in the church and how when that transformation comes, how that door opens for all of us, the priesthood of believers, those who know Christ, who are part of the Big C Church, to begin to use the gifts and talents God has given us, not just the paid staff, but each and every one of us who've been given gifts and talents. When we come to know Christ, he acknowledges that in us, he shows us what those are, and then we're able to use those for the continuing of his kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick up there in verse 17 and take it right on through chapter 5 and verse 4 today. And in those verses, Paul describes the standards, the standards expected of this new society, of God's new society, of how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act in that. So we've discussed how God's people are called to be one, to be unified, and we're also called to be holy. And when we're called to be holy, we're called to purity. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verses 22 through 24. Then we're going to pray and jump right in here. So you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the morning. God, we're thankful for the freedom to be able to walk in here today. And I pray that as each of us has, has started out with worship, that you have already begun a work in each one of us to open up our minds and our souls to speak to each one of us. God, I pray that you move me out of the way. I become a vessel that you work through. The words that you've given me this week and the, the spirit of this text, I pray that it will be clear. 
and that our lives will be changed as a result of it, God. So we thank you and we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if, if, I think most of us have probably been through this in our lives, but we have these um, favorite clothes that we like to wear, right? Things that, that just kind of fit right. But over the years, they become tattered, stained, um, they got stories behind them and kind of rips and tears, but they become these old garments, right? And Paul, what he's talking about in here, uses this this whole clothing illustration throughout this te- these texts. And he talks about removing the old garment, putting off the old garment, and putting on a new garment. So not just a replacement, but something that, that fully, fully engulfs us as individuals. But we have to do it in that order, put off the old and put on the new. So look back with me to verse 17. We're going to start there. And kind of pick apart these verses and and talk about who Paul is talking to and what his message is to the church at Ephesus. In verse 17 it says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So the people knew who Paul was talking about. The Gentiles were a very professed pagan people. They didn't follow or or know who Christ was or didn't accept him at this time. And as a Christian, I think it's fair to say that we believe non-Christians are pagans. Basically, there are those of us who know Christ and Christ lives in our lives. And we feel that people who do not believe that is, is everybody else. And we see them as pagan people. And that's who... Paul is talking about, and the people at Ephesus know this. They understand this. It's those people over there that he's talking about. And there's a typical Christian life, and then there's a typical pagan life. And they're fundamentally opposed to each other. So the Ephesians had once been pagans, but were still living in this pagan environment. And Paul's pointing it out to them. We cannot live that way any longer, he says. Even though we once live as pagans, now that we are Christians, we can no longer live as a pagan. Just kind of introduces this section for us. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Pretty pointed. Paul's getting, he's kind of getting very, very specific here who these people are and how they live. So if God himself, though, is the light, if God is the light, I think we believe that, and he's continuously speaking to us through his creation, the Bible says that, he speaks to us us through his creation each and every day, And both heaven and earth declare his glory, which is also scripture. Where does this darkening in their understanding come from? How does this happen? Where does it it originate? Well, Paul says it comes from the hardening of their hearts. And the meaning that he's using here is similar to (coughs) a useless idolatrous statue, a worthless stone. So he's comparing their hearts to a stone, a useless stone, something that becomes so hard that it just sits there. 
Nothing can penetrate it. Nothing can change it. Nothing at all. But the meaning goes beyond this to be sure because this is not something we become and just cannot help. Like, well, my heart's hard. Can't do anything about it. It's just the way I am. I act this way because my heart's hard. No, the immorality is seen as willful and pagans are responsible for their actions, according to Paul. Because you see, the heart and the mind cannot be separated. How many times have you said or heard someone say, well, I, I know it up here intellectually, cognitively. I just don't feel it here. Don't we hear that and we say that from time to time? Not even just about our, our faith, but about all kinds of things. Our heart and soul includes our capacity to think and understand, so they cannot be separated. So Paul is defining the dangerous downward spiral that we can go down. And that spiral, as he explains it, looks like this. First comes the hardness of the heart. Then ignorance follows that. Darkening of our understanding. Next, we're alienated from the life of God because God separates himself from sin. So if we're hardened, our hearts are hardened, we've separated ourselves from God. And then finally, these people become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, as it says. Licentiousness. That's an ugly sounding word, isn't it? It means promiscuous and unprincipled in sexual matters. Greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. I mean, this is like bad stuff, right? So the life, this life is one of satisfaction of every desire that comes up. Kind of like a, a dog, right? Just that do whatever comes to mind, see it, do it, whatever, whatever it is. Kind of looks like some guys on campus in the spring. You know what I mean, right? There's... <laughs> Walking around campus, you know, gets a little warmer, skin showing a little bit more. You know, there's just all, oh, oh, all that stuff going on. This is what these people were doing thousands of years ago. This licentiousness, it's a promiscuous type of behavior. Just do whatever feels good. Just go after it. Doesn't matter. This has no effect on you. That's the, the life that it, all these things lead to, the hardening of the heart and being ignorant leads to. So hardness of the heart leads to the darkness of the mind, then the deadness of the soul under the judgment of God, and finally to recklessness of life. Verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So Paul now shifts to the Christian life, and he says, it's not what you learned I know you've learned these things, people, but it's not what you've learned. It reminded me when I was coaching uh, softball, my daughter's team, and we worked so much on bunt coverage because bunt coverage is so important in fast-pitch softball. It's a quick game. Things can happen very quickly. And, and it would be like me coaching, and all of a sudden a, a bunt's laid down, and my left fielder decides to cover the bunt. I'd be like, not that it ever happened. I was a better coach than that. But I, I would be thinking, that's not what I taught you. That's not what we learned. It's not what we went through over and over and over and over again. I think that's what Paul's, he's, he's frustrated with them. This is not what you learned, people. 
Well, he uses three verbs. He says, to learn, to hear, and to be taught. And to learn has this school-like feel to it. Christ himself is the subject of teaching, but not just the word made flesh, but the teaching is about the lordship of Christ, how, how God changes our life and, and is lord of our life and how the righteousness and declares all moral change in us. So it's more than just this head knowledge of who God is. It's how Christ invigorates our souls and works in our life. That's what it means to learn. And then he says to hear. To hear means that Christ himself is also the teacher. That we actually hear the voice of Christ, that Christ teaches about Christ. And then he says to learn or, or to, be, to be taught in him. So to learn, to hear, and to be taught in him. So in addition to Christ being the teacher, he also is the context. He's the entire atmosphere of the teaching. So when Jesus is the teacher, when Jesus is the context, when Jesus is the atmosphere, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're talking about Christian things. And he finishes it because he says, the, for the truth is in Jesus. So if this darkness leads to reckless uncleanness, what is the truth that sets Christians free and leads to righteousness? So let's read on the verses that we already read to start this this morning. Verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So to learn Christ is to grasp this new creation. It's nothing less than putting off your old self, this human stuff, like a rotten old piece of clothing and putting on a brand new piece of clothing recreated in God's image. That's what he calls us to do. To put off that old self is repentance. And this is the part we have to do. We put away the old things we once did in that rejected life. So we fling off this old. We fling off the old life. And then everything is great. Right? You can say no. Just say no. Just say no. No, no, that's right. It's not all right. Thank you for being with me. Both of you. But <laughs> but wait. So so if I just fling off that old stuff, why can't why can't it be okay after that? I'm not doing those things anymore. I've stopped the behaviors that Paul's talking about or is about to talk about in the next few verses. So why can't I just stop doing those things? Well, that's called behavior modification, right? We're just saying we'll change what we're doing. I got this. I can stop doing these things. No problem. Turn from sin and turn to Jesus. We become a new person, fresh, beautiful, and vigorous like God created in his image. If we just fling off the old stuff, we're the ones that are still standing there. Nothing has changed other than behaviors. It's not sustainable. 
It doesn't work that way. I've heard people say that before. I believe in good, I believe in evil, and I just choose to be good. Well, that's admirable, right? But it's like running your car with no oil in it. It'll run lean and mean for a few miles, but eventually you're going to throw a rod out the side of the block, right? In our lives, it's the same way. If we think that we can do it on our own or just change our behaviors, it will not sustain itself. We will fail. We will run out of energy to do that. We cannot put off without putting on. Verse 23, it says, renewed in the spirit of your minds. So in If this heathen pagan lifestyle is the result of the uselessness, the futility of the mind, then Christian righteousness depends on the constant renewing. It's not a passive lifestyle. It's not something that we just take on, okay, God, thank you for the new mind. I'll see you next Sunday. It is a daily thing that we have to do to renew our minds. We put off the old self and put on the new life God created for us. Recreation is what God does, and repentance is what we do by His grace. They belong together and cannot be separated. So this complete picture that Paul is painting for us and for the Ephesians is that we choose to follow Christ, we experience a new creation, then we receive a new mind that is constantly being renewed. In our new creation that's given us a new mind, and it's our new mind that understands our new creation. They cannot be separated. Now, Paul gets into what putting off and putting on really mean. He's saying to the church at Ephesus, you you did not throw off your former self once and for all because the conduct is still there. The conduct of the old life still remains. You claim to know all these things, but you're still acting like a bunch of pagans. It's not having the put on in every part of your life. So if repentance and recreation has happened, then our behavior must become consistent with the kind of person we've become. Not by a choice. Initially, it's a choice. But after that, it's God working in us. We're constantly having our mind renewed each and every day. So keeping with the clothing metaphor, it kind of made me think about people who get out of prison. And whatever thought you have of, you know, seeing somebody, if you're walking down the road and you see somebody in an orange jumpsuit, you'd be like, something's not right here. Why are you there by yourself and not where you're supposed to be? It may not be orange. That's what we have in our county. You may, whatever you think of when you think of jail clothes or whatever you may have worn. I, I don't know. No judgment here. But if, if that, whatever picture you have in your mind, it's like if we were to get out of prison, we would change our clothes. Right? We would take off those garments that dictate who we were as this person and put on something new that says, now I'm a free person. Now I'm a free person in Christ. So Paul spends his time talking to us about off of the old, old with the new, and now jumps right into the practical and very pointed behaviors that he's talking about. So he kind of shifts gears and, and stops preaching and starts to meddle a little bit. Right? 
But remember, he said that we must put on this new creation. We cannot just stop doing something that was wrong. We must put on what is right. So verse 25, let's read verses 25 all the way through verse 4 of chapter 5. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So these six behaviors that Paul talks about, they have three commonalities. There are three things that are common to all of them. The first thing is each of them concerns our relationships. They all have to do our relationship with each other and ultimately our relationship with God. But this righteousness that we receive when we come to know Christ cannot be experienced just in this room. It cannot be just kept to ourselves. And what he's saying is that we can't take on the grace that God gives us and then hold on to it. That would be nice if we could do that. I think about it, it would be nice if I could do that with my kids. If I could just bubble wrap them, right, and put them in their room and say, I'll feed you. I'll be back to visit you from time to time, but I don't want you to get in trouble. I don't want you to make a bad decision. I don't want anything to affect you for the rest of your life, so I'm going to protect you by, by keeping you right here. I think we think that a lot of times for ourselves. I, I got this grace and I've experienced God and, and, and I don't want to do anything wrong. I don't want to get it wrong. So we stay here when we're called to be a light to the world. When we're called to be a beacon on the hill, we as a church cannot hold on to what we know and stay safely in this room with it. It reminds me of, I like to, to cook with olive oil. They say it's healthier. Whatever, it's according to how much you put on it, right? So I cook with olive oil and always do this. When the pan is finished, I like taking it over when I'm washing the pan and taking the dish detergent and doing the one drop thing. You know what I mean? And it starts separating the grease. I don't know. It looks cool to me. I saw it on the dog commercial when I was nine. I just keep doing it. I want to see if it keeps working. If it doesn't work for you, you're using cheap dish detergent, right? So get some good stuff. But I think that's what it's supposed to look like for us as Christians is when we go into the world, we impact it by being that drop into the middle of society that causes something to change, something to move because of what God's done in us. 
not being a jerk about it, but just because of what God's done in us, people see a difference and desire to want what we have. Another commonality is each of them begins with a negative no-no, and then it's balanced by this corresponding positive. You can't put off the old rags. You must put on a new garment. We can't just stop doing without replacing it with, with what God desires for us. And then finally, Paul, as he's talking about each of these six things, he either gives a reason that's, that's given or implied of why he's talking about it. Because in our Christian life, belief and behavior are inseparable. Whatever I believe is going to dictate my behavior ultimately. So let's look at these. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. So it says, don't tell lies, but rather tell the truth. Now, Paul's talking about a couple of different lies here. One of them is the lies of idols. He goes back to this stone concept and the lie that idols bring about and these false, these false um, idols and stone statues and different things that are meaningless and useless. It's a lie from the pit of hell he's teaching them. But he's also talking about the way we speak. The speaking the truth is just as important here. Followers of Jesus should be people of integrity and character. Speaking the truth and being honest with each other. We're commanded to love our neighbor absolutely. But Paul wants us to see how this affects the body of Christ. When he's talking about unity and all of this has to do with unity and us being unified in the body of Christ lies within a group of believers, goes deeper, goes much deeper because we're still using the illustration of the body of Christ when there's a lie, it cuts into the very organs, into the very body parts that make up the church. So lies and falsehood, as Paul writes, tears down our relationships while truth gives it strength. <coughs> Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Don't lose your temper, but rather ensure that your anger is righteous. I had to pause several times during this one. Because anger, I think, I think it's difficult for many, many people. But we want it to justify it to be righteous a lot of times. So this past week, I, anger was right there, right? Because I had to go to Walmart. And so I fasted for three days before and um, prepared myself for the trip. Well, what had happened was I, um, I came across, had this great idea. So over the past couple of years, I've built this um, outside area behind my house to enjoy and um, build it just, you know, every time I get money to, to buy a board, I'd add on to it. So it's almost done now. But anyway, I, I got it high enough to where I could put a TV in there. So I needed to add, for us direct TV people, a Genie wireless to get another TV working, right? Well, I started Googling a little bit and found that Walmart.com sells these Genies. I'm like, ha, 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 I'm to pull one over on direct TV right here. So I ordered me a genie for $50. A 
comes in. I'm excited about it. I'm like, I'm going to hook this thing up. So I go out, hook it up, connects with the bridge, and then I get this message. You have exceeded your number of genies in your household. I'm like, I only have two. I can have up to eight. I'm talking to the TV, you know, right here. And so what's, what's going on here? Which one would you like to replace? I don't want to replace any of them. I want this to be my new one. Fought it, fought it, fought it. Googled it, of course. Didn't come up with many good answers. And then I had to make the ultimate sacrifice and call DirecTV. Even now, my blood pressure is going up, right? I don't like talking to human beings when it comes to my problems on the phone. So thankfully, God sent me a very, very kind man. And we began to talk. I told him my dilemma. So I got this uh, at walmart.com. And I need to hook it up. Could you tell me how to do that? He goes, you got it where? Oh, boy. I said, walmart.com. And he said, they can't do that. I said, well, they did do that because I'm holding it right in my hand. He said, those can only be purchased from us, and we have to authorize them to be used. Okay, here we go. So the anger's starting to get a little bit more in me. He said, but looking at your, at your account here, it looks like you have one that you're not using, so I can send you one from here, and we can hook that up. And I said, well, how much is all this going to be? He goes, it won't cost you anything. Ha, <laughs> I win, right? I said, what do I do with this one? He said, well, just take it back to Walmart. Okay, no problem. Walmart, take it back anything, right? So here's where we are in the story. I make the trip, walk into Walmart, this kind lady behind the service desk, Hand it to her and said, I bought this on walmart.com. Could I return it here? She starts scanning. She gives that Walmart look, you know, kind of side turn, confused. She goes, yes, you can return it here, but there's a restocking fee and a return fee. Click, click, click. That comes up to $35. Do what? I said, so it's going to cost me $35 to return a $50 product that's not useful, right? She said, yeah. So the anger starts to build up where I want to pull her over to my side of the counter and have another conversation with her. But I prayed and knew that she had nothing to do with this. She's reading the screen. I was like, what? Why? I don't understand. She goes, I said, can I return it like online to, to Walmart? And she goes, well, that's the marketplace. I said, was well, that the, the little one over over across town? She goes, no, that's, that's the neighborhood market. The marketplace is kind of in the air. Like in heaven? What, what are you talking about? She goes, that, yeah, it really has nothing to do with us. I said, well, they're using your name, and that might be something y'all want to check into. She goes, no, you'll just have to re- return it to them. So I'm trying to justify a righteous anger here, but it's really not coming up for me. And I think we all run into those things from time to time. And just to end the story, it's in the front seat of my truck. If you have any ideas, I'm thinking about running it over. But anyway, it only cost me about $15, right, if I get the other back. All right, so there are many examples of God being angry, Jesus being angry, angry throughout text, even Jesus flipping over these tables when he gets ticked off of people selling sacrifices, selling animals at the temple. Jesus goes in and he flips over tables. He's so angry about it. And I think we should too be angered by the things that angers Jesus. But we 
I think we're failing to do that these days. All the sins here that are listed that Paul's talking about, I think have become compromises for many of us. Because what angers God doesn't anger us anymore. In the face of evil, we should get ticked and take a stand that says no when we face it. We can't be apathetic to blatant sin and justify it by saying, well, that's just how people are these days. Sin is sin. It hasn't changed from the beginning of time. Sin is sin. So when we're given permission to be angry, it doesn't mean that we have complete free will to yell at our spouse or yell at our kids or for you to yell at me. It doesn't give us that freedom to do that. So Paul's very deliberate in how this works in these verses. The first thing he says is don't sin. Don't sin. Our anger must be free from spite, free from malice, free from revenge. I wanted revenge on the Walmart girl. I wanted to hurt her, right? And that carried out into the parking lot and pedestrians and then getting out on Northside Drive, it was just building up. You know, I thought, God, this could just justify a Krispy Kreme. Whatever, you know, whatever was right in front of me. It's just anger begins to build up, and we have this, these thoughts that come to mind. And that's what he's saying. You can't sin when you're angry, and that helps us to, to really discern the difference between righteous anger and just selfish anger. It's my own selfishness that I deal with with anger like that. He also says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this is not so much of a literal interpretation as much as it's not nursing anger without some resolution. We don't just let it sit there and let it build up. I like to talk about anger in in my work and dealing with clients a lot of times. I talk about anger being something that, that we stuff down. It builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and it does one of two things. It either explodes or it leaks, and neither one of them are very pretty. And that's what anger looks like if we leave it alone. Keeping anger in leads to bitterness and then resentment. A lot of couples that I work with, if they live by the rule, don't go to bed angry, some would die of exhaustion. You know, like seven weeks. We haven't slept in seven weeks. I'm just kidding. Six weeks. Um, So... And if you think about the literal interpretation, there are places that's like daylight for a year, you know, like Greenland, some of these places, that would, oh, that would just be odd. So it's not really a literal interpretation, but it's not letting it just sit there and fester. We need to act on it and do something about it. And then he says, give no opportunity to the devil. Because I think Satan loves anger. Satan loves angry people. And I think that that's, that's Satan's way to get his foothold in the doorway of our anger. And can work in this. I know he works on my life so many times when it comes to that type of anger of just not getting my way. And Satan takes hold of that. Verse 28. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So don't steal, but rather work and give. The eighth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Well, there's this wide meaning here of taking someone's possessions and inevitably being a drain on society. And when someone takes from others, everyone suffers. I don't know about you, but I can't stand a thief. It's always been that way for me. And I think it started when I was about nine years old. Our house was broken into. 
and the perpetrator came through my window in my bedroom. I had one of these beds that was called a captain's bed, and it had wood rails around it. And for years, as long as I had that bed, there was a shard of glass that was stuck in that wood. And it just kind of always reminded me, and, and, and watching my parents deal with that, and, and just someone coming into your property, coming close enough to you to take your things, is it, just something that hits me to the core. All the way to the point where just this past week, my receptionist goes out to my house, and, and she calls me, and she says, somebody's pulling out of your yard. And I, and I stopped and said, asked them if I could help them with anything, and they just they said no, and it took off really fast. Man, everything in me was like, I mean, it could have been nobody, just somebody lost turning around, but everything in me was like, I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to go right now. I'll be there in a minute. And I had her checking everything around the house, going around my shop. Is anything missing? You know, let me tell you where this is, this is. And everything was fine. But that, that somebody just invading our privacy is, is so much, um, so hurtful. Well, it also has to do with kind of being a consumer and not a contributor as well. Not just stealing things, but, but that's, that's taking what somebody else has without being a part of it. And this transformation makes someone who was a taker into a giver, someone who was a consumer into a contributor. It can have even uh, you know, to do with us in, in church or, or being a part of something else and just taking from it. You know, you, you, you hear about the, our different attitudes of church and, and people who just attend, these attenders, they just come and just kind of hang out and come and go. And, you know, can, all these different categories. But what it comes down to is that, that heart issue. Am I consuming something that I'm not giving to? And the wonderful thing of how God explains it is not about the church needing something from you. It's God wanting something for you. So when you contribute, whatever that may be, contributing to me is pursuing God. If you're pursuing God, the things that you want to do, the, the places that you want to serve, happen as a result of your pursuit of God, not just by changing it. You don't just throw off the old rags. You put on the new garment that he has for us. So the one who is taking from society is now working an honest job, supporting the family, is able to give to others in need. And that's a cool transformation. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So don't use your mouth for evil, but rather for good. Words are powerful. And we got to be honest about how our words affect others. In this verse, it says, So let no evil talk come out of your mouths. And the word for evil is sapros, which means rotten trees and rotten fruit. So whatever our talk is, ugliness, vulgarities, an unkind word, it hurts the hearer. So instead of our words are, are to be used to build up, not destroy, to encourage, not to discourage. Paul says this type of behavior grieves the Holy Spirit. To grieve the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is, is grieved by unholiness, by disunity, by impurities. And the words we use cut deeply, and that grieves the Holy Spirit. Because words can be so divisive. 
We can watch that on the news every day. We can see it in our homes every day. We can see it in our churches every day that words are hurtful. And if we're truly filled with the Spirit, we will desire to bring the Holy Spirit pleasure, not pain. In our relationships, we will want to bring about pleasure and encouragement, not pain. Why would I choose to cause pain to my wife? Why would I use words that would hurt her and harm her? And the more I sit with people, it blows my mind at the, the name-calling that goes on in marriages. The things that I hear in my own office, I can't imagine what goes on behind closed doors. Stop the name-calling. Build each other up. Throw off those rags and put on a garment that is going to be encouraging and edifying to the people around you. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Don't be unkind or bitter, but rather kind and loving. Paul names these six very unpleasant attitudes in this verse, in the first part of these verses. Bitterness, that sour spirit. Wrath, the passionate rage. Anger is sullen hostility, brawling. People who get excited, raise their voices, even scream at each other. I see a bunch of nudging. What do y'all understand? Just kidding. Slander, speaking evil of others, especially behind their backs, malice, wishing or even plotting evil against another person. So instead of these things, put them off and put on being kind to one another. We're to be compassionate while forgiving each other. Because of God's grace towards us, we should be imitators of God. And when we imitate God, it's, it, it is absolutely impossible to imitate God and talk bad about someone. I cannot justify imitating God and going, well, I'm imitating God, so that's why I'm calling you this name. I don't know that God's a name caller. I don't think God uses words to tear me down. I've never heard God do that through his word, through other people who I trust. I've never heard that. So if I'm imitating God, those words cannot be used anymore. The last part in verse 3 of chapter 5, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Don't joke about sex, but rather give thanks for it. Paul turns from self-sacrifice, from the way we treat people, the way we love each other and forgive each other, to self-indulgence. He just drops it right in our lap. The words for fornication and impurity cover every kind of sexual sin. All sexual intercourse outside its God-ordained context of a loving marriage. Paul even includes greed or covetousness. This is coveting someone else's body for selfish gratification, lusting after someone, pornography, 
Those are coveting someone else. See, one of their pagan gods was Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And with this, orgies were a regular practice during worship. So Paul has a pretty good case to be heard here. Orgies during worship. That sort of changes the context of worship, doesn't it? Holy cow. So he's angry about this. These people who are claiming to know Christ, this atmosphere, this culture is still around them. Verse 4 goes beyond sexual immorality to how we talk about it. We're not a joke or cheapen what God has given to us as a gift. I think we've done a terrible job, a terrible job in the church talking or not talking about the gift of sex that God has given to each one of us when it's used in the right place. We've either stopped talking about it and says it's bad, sex is terrible, don't do it, save it for marriage. What does that say? Good luck with that. So when we are giving thanks for the beautiful gift of sex, it is a spiritual impossibility to cheapen it. When we're giving thanks for what God has given to us, it is a spiritual impossibility to cheapen it. So in all of this, Paul has talked about who we are. He's talked about how we think. And then he's talked about the action that follows that. We're God's society, and we have to put off the old life and put on the new life, renewing our minds daily. It's not a passive lifestyle. We have to actively put off the old and put away that conduct that separates from a loving God and a new life in Christ. And I don't think it's until we clearly see who we are in Christ that putting away and the putting on will truly happen. We have to know who we are in Christ. The head and the heart must move together. So my question to you this morning is, do you want God, do you want your goal to be good? Or do you want to know Christ more? I think there's a big difference. Is your goal to just be good? To just throw off those old things? I'm going to do my best to be good. Or maybe today is that day that you're saying, I didn't even, I even started that process. I'm, I'm wearing this old coat right now, and I'm feeling pretty comfortable in it, but it's getting kind of uncomfortable in this room because God's doing something in my heart right now, and I need to start there. I need to throw this old garment off. And be shown where that new garment is. And we would love to do that today. And maybe that's where God is speaking to you right now. Your heart's beating 100 miles an hour. Palms are sweating. You don't know what's about to happen. It's not a trick. We love to celebrate this. We love for people to take their next step to begin that journey with Christ. And if that's you this morning, so we can celebrate with you and help you make that decision, I want you to just stand up right where you are. Making that decision for the first time, or maybe for the real time today. It says, I'm going to take this stuff off, and I'm going to start something new today. Just stand up right where you are. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, bud. Thank you. We want to pray with you. You got that, Les? Les is going to come out here and pray with you and, and walk you through that. Anybody else? Ice is broken. You won't be the first. Anybody else? So for all of us who are in here who either claim to know Christ or we're just not in a place to make that decision today, that's perfectly fine. But for those of us who know Christ, I want you to ask yourself that question today. Is my goal, am I just trying to be good or am I truly putting on that new self each and every day? Is God renewing my mind each and every day? Am I allowing him to do that? Because for many of you, you might think, if I do that, it's going to change some things. Yes, it is. It's going to change the way you think, the way you feel. It's going to change the way you work. It's going to change the way you play. It's going to change the way you treat your family. It's going to treat, change the way you are in a family. And I can promise you this. If you make that decision to stop just trying to do it on your own, and holding on to that old garment, then everybody who is a part of your life will be blessed because of it. I can guarantee you that and may thank you for it. Because many of us, we don't know how big of a jerk we can be sometimes, right? Others are happy to tell us. (laughs) But God wants to change that in each and every one of us. So I challenge you with that question. Is your goal to be good? is your goal to pursue Christ more and know him better. So let's pray together as we go. God, we're thankful for the morning. We're thankful for for someone who has made that decision today to go from death to life. Awesome, awesome time. For the rest of us, God, who are here as we walk out of this place, I pray, God, that we will be that impact in our community. We will be that drop of dish detergent in the middle of of a pool of grease. That we will make an impact. We won't leave it in this room, but we take it with us to change this community, change this world. So God, we thank you and we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.